Greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This show has been created to bring to light the need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in the lack of a centralized African-based culture in the black race as it exists in Western civilization and the Western Hemisphere and beyond, actually. My name is Clarence Jones, your host today. And I will use this show to make a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa as a platform. I think this was a critical component that's missing in the black community and the black race in general. Um, we want to use Kwanzaa as a platform for the many different kinds of black people to gather around. I believe we should take Kwanzaa and turn it into a year-round system instead of a once-a-year holiday. And so... A, a, a legitimate question, of course, is what is it about Kwanzaa that makes it a, a good platform to utilize? And Kwanzaa is African, number one. It is not specific to a particular tribe of Africa, so it is inclusive to all African people. Kwanzaa is a first fruits harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, nationality, geography, or ethnicity. The African peoples need an ancestral-based system that all black people can rally around. This would lead to better camaraderie, familiarity, which would lead to better continuity, then more camaraderie, which would lead to an enhanced ability to organize and coordinate and to orchestrate as one force. And, of course, the result of all these processes, uh, together, putting them together, is what is called unity. And unity is an ingredient that has been lacking in the black population, has been at the root of many of its uh, struggles and challenges, or been a major impediment to its ability to deal with adversity, struggles, and enemies as one force. I'm going to use this show to make it population and for the using Kwanzaa as that cultural platform. I'm going to history, my personal life as a professional athlete, current events and books I've read as illustrations of that need for a central culture in the black population. So that's a nice intro into where we're going today and where I want to go and where I like to be. I like to get into the history. I like to get into what's going on. I like to get into what I've observed. But before we do all of that, we still have to, what, why is culture important? What is culture? First of all, and um, this show is an illustration of the, the lack of a central culture in African American race, and how we're that made that that how that's been a problem for the black population. And so we're we're going to use this show to examine the consequences of not having a central culture in uh, the black race. And we're going to look at historically, we're going to look at and presently, and so. The, the question again, what is culture? Why is it important? And culture is a rendezvous place for ethnic groups. It cannot collectively do anything economically, socially, politically, or security-wise without a rendezvous place for an ethnic group or race. Culture gives a daily rules and regulation for any race or ethnic group or company or organization. So it's not even just for races. 
Culture it gives you a playbook for the race or ethnic group, nation, sports team. Culture is a coming together of shared values and beliefs, customs, how to educate, entrepreneurship, how to acquire and utilizing symbols of status. All these come together when we're talking about culture. Culture must be learned. It is not something born into you. Someone teaches it to you. Your mother, your father, your grandfather, your grandmother, your cousins, your brother, your sister, the, the, the person up the street. If they're the, the old man up the street, if he's of the same race as you and ethnicity, he teaches you culture as well. And so all these come into um, culture as a learned thing. So you have to actively be indoctrinated to culture. So if you're talking about an ethnic group, that's on the same page, an ethnic group that um, is unified, an ethnic group that is able to come together when necessary, an ethnic group that is able to build for the future when necessary. Those are all taught into them. That's not something that they innately have inside of them. You know, it's not, they're not just born with it and know, oh, we're supposed to do this. We're, we're Jews. We're, we're, uh, we're North, we're Koreans and we do this. No, that is taught to you. Uh, it is a connection point for the race and its ancestral rituals, success procedures, child wearing, as we said, uh, education, stewardship, and survival. Culture uses symbols and artifacts, flags and, stat and statues that symbolizes as metaphors of the humanity and the unity of that race. Culture is a center, uh, center point of groups. It's, it's rituals of birth, death, um, how to date one another. All this come, comes into play when we're talking about culture. Culture is an economic, strategic planning of a race. Acquisition, business, um, how to start and help in the process of getting a business. Culture is transportation point of the history of its race, the entity, and who we are. Uh, one race calls itself the chosen people. Your race gives you that. Culture is the economic, political, psychological, spiritual, uh, even geographical rallying point for ethnic groups. And, of course, the disconnection from all of these elements of civil uh, of civilization leaves it virtually defenseless. So if you're an ethnic group and you are disconnected from your culture, you're disconnected from your language, you're disconnected from who, how, how babies are, are bred. So you have a child, but there's a process to rearing that child. There's a process to preparing that child for adulthood. There's a process for preparing that child for education. There are all kinds of processes that are given to you by culture. So culture is the template for a race that without it, you know, it simply, it cannot exist as a cooperative entity. Very important. So these are critical things of race. We're, we're showing that it's important. Okay, why is it important? A race can give you a serviceable dynamic between genders, a uh, not a race, but a culture can give you a serviceable dynamic between genders, 
It can organize you around um, uh, economics. Only culture can do this. Only culture can probably dispute uh, information, knowledge. Only culture can create classes within the race. Only culture can symmetry between, uh, I think we said that, genders and, and what have you. Culture is a critical. This is why it's important. Uh, only culture can love a specific people. God loves all his children. Government protects all of its people. But there's still inequality. Only culture can teach how to love each other as a race. Only culture can teach why education is important to you. Only culture can teach you why power is important for you. For the whole, you know, for the when we're talking about the whole race. So only culture will teach you how to honor and value old people. These are critical points and, and that, that make having a culture a critical point for the survival of a race. So I think I've gotten into why culture is important, what culture is, why it's important. Um, I guess the next question is, are there, you know, since central culture is a key ingredient that's been missing in the black race for generations and is an important component to the survival and prosperity of a race, are there historic examples of ethnic groups that have benefited from a strong centralized culture? And um, I think there are many. Uh, I, I like the Jews. I like the Japanese. There are examples. The Koreans, there are examples. There are examples in the Chinese, uh, the Vietnamese. Right now, I've been really focusing on Jews uh, because I've read a lot about them. I've read several books, really enjoyed them, and it was very it was insightful to their success and uh, their socially and their the fact that they you everyone says well they're doctors and lawyers these people have survived a lot of trauma going back thousands of years and so I believe their system this has been persecuted for the going back to the Middle Ages they were used as the tax collectors and representatives of the feudal lords and the king. Uh, in Poland, there were economic economic overseers in Eastern Europe, uh, namely Ukraine, uh, for the feudal lords, and, and as well, they were act they did a lot of work for Poland. So I have no idea why, but Poland was a powerful uh, nation years ago. Uh, I, they were actually one of the most powerful and influential nations in all of Europe at some point. Uh, but with the Jewish people becoming the overseers and the economic overseers. The, the result was a lot of resentment and anti-Semitism towards them, uh, which began what are called the pogroms. And that began in Europe uh, because of their resentment of their success and their unwillingness to assimilate. And so that was a problem that was hard for them to overcome. Well, they, it was hard, but they did it. <laughs> so uh, That's the good news. The Jews were distrusted in medieval Europe and had laws actually enacted against them. Uh, people were forbidden to marry Jews. Jews were forbidden to, uh, to 
and they were also forbidden forbidden to vote. They were not allowed to vote. So uh, their disenfranchisement meant that they became the the middlemen. They were and they were non-agrarian, so they were not really farmers. They were uh, they were had the professions that were tradesmen. Uh, they were the garment industry, and they still are heavily into the garment industry to this day. This started back in the Middle Ages. Uh, they became they became the middlemen, the brokers, um, that led to them into the lending industry, very heavily in the lending industry, which aided the king because it didn't uh, require a lot of labor. This made them even more hated in Eastern Europe because they were the bankers. And they were the, basically, they were the vassals of the king. So one, one problem that the Jews had in, in, in the Eastern Europe and in the Middle Ages, they had a direct relationship to the king. And so they paid the kings their taxes. Thus, no one else other than the king really benefited from their economic prosperity, creating more resentment of them and distrust. Uh, that this natural dynamic, uh, existed between them and the king. Uh, one thing, they were urban people because the urban environment pr- pr- provided better protection against violence and pogroms. The pogroms were very prevalent in the countryside where people were isolated and people could gather and, and run up on families, their farms or wherever they were living and do whatever they wanted to them. So the, the safest places were the urban spaces for the Jewish uh, population, making them, you know, even better, uh, allowing them to be good tradesmen and allowing them to be good uh, middlemen and allowing them to be the bankers. So that was very, uh, I think that's a critical point for, for them as far as them having that protection. So that, that the knights and the lords uh, resented them. There was an alienation uh, with them not paying, with no one benefiting from their economic prosperity other than the king, they really had alienation on all directions. The peasants didn't like them. The king, the the knights, and the middle-level people really didn't like them either. So they had alienation from all directions. Uh, because of the strong cultural dynamic and refusing to go away from their culture, Again, they became hated. They became hated also by the churches of Europe. And of course, they had large sums of revenues that were not going to the church. The revenues were going to their own synagogue. So the church resented them as well. The Jews were routinely expelled from Europe cities, European cities, uh, only to be brought back for economic reasons. So again, the Jewish people, the Jew, Jewish population were very good businessmen, bankers, and economic vassals of the king, so the people would get mad at them, and and they would get expelled. They would be you, you have to leave. They would then have economic uh, downturn, and the Jews would be required to come back to help them uh, restart their economy. So it was just an interesting uh, reality, an interesting dynamic between the Jewish population and the European population, and this now caused the Jews to really scatter around the world, and it created what is called a diaspora. And that diaspora 
was a very strong diaspora culturally, economically, religious-wise, socially, because the Jews, wherever they went all over the world, they met the same type of resentment because, again, they did well economically. They tended to not assimilate. They had strong cultural ties. And so they used their economic diaspora to propel the, their economic prosperity. So they did business with each other all over the world. Uh, as far as diamond industry in South Africa, uh, diamonds from South Africa to New York, diamonds from South Africa to be anywhere in the world. And so, and the financing uh, was part of that as well. So the diaspora was very strong because of their cultural, their, their centralized culture was strong. So uh, that, again, had consequences post-World War One. They experienced a lot of resentment. And they were basically blamed for losing the war, war in Germany as far as uh, them being scapegoated and, and the emergence of the Nazi regime. One of the bulwarks of that was, uh, one of the consequences of that was that resentment and the persecution of the Jews really picked up in Germany. So essentially, the pogroms of the Middle Ages basically continued in Germany and Nazi Germany post-World War One, And so they, again, were scapegoated, the Jews were, and they were basically uh, accused of having stronger business and cultural loyalty than national loyalty. So these are the things that uh, were, that challenged the Jewish population. And so I think their strong centralized culture was the thing that allowed them to survive that. And then not only did it allow them to survive that, uh, the Jews essentially outlasted several empires. They outlasted the Roman Empire. They outlasted the Ottoman Empire. They outlasted the British Empire, to a certain extent, does not exist the way it used to. They operated in all those empires and uh, probably the Greek Empire. So they operated in all those empires, were equally resented in all those empires, but basically their race and culture has lived on. So that's one uh, positive consequence of, of the Jewish population and their strong uh, central culture and how they benefited from, from that. They, beca they became the economic um, powerhouse in, in most of the areas that they resided in. They became the doctors and lawyers. And not only did they become the doctors and lawyers, they literally became doctors and lawyers from poor neighborhoods that they left. Poor neighborhoods that the schools weren't considered good. They, their children left those neighborhoods once they graduated, became doctors and lawyers, while the other poor people became policemen, construction workers, uh, you know, basically everyday laborers. So they came out of environments that were not necessarily conducive to them becoming high-level people, and they did it anyway. And, of course, that's culture that did that for them. And so they became uh, disproportionate numbers of 
of owners and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. They became disproportionate numbers of people who attended and graduated Ivy League schools. Uh, they, the, the, the most impre- I think the most impressive thing they did was to create the Jewish state of Israel. And because if you hear, if you remember in, in social studies and in, in school, when you heard about Israel, you heard about kibbutzes, and, and they were basically like communal farms when, when Israel first, when they first started migrating to then Palestine and taking the land and trying to create their own state, it was a very agrarian process for them. And of course, what is their history? The Jewish history is non-agrarian. They're the tradesmen, they're the middlemen, they're the bankers, they're the financiers, they're the lawyers, they're the accountants. These, this is who they've been for thousands of years. So how can they turn at the drop of a hat and use the agrarian approach to create their own nation? And so this is something that has to be respected uh, in the, you know, in, uh, with that. And um, so that's, that's what I have as far as a central culture helping a particular ethnic group. I think uh, a strong central culture was definitely a major factor in helping the survival of the Jewish race and the prosperity of the Jewish race. So not only the survival, we're really talking the prosperity. So we've taken a look at the benefits of a strong central culture and how it's helped ethnic groups survive generations of persecution only to end up thriving globally. We now will look at a central, how having a decentralized culture has hurt groups. And of course, I'm going to focus on the African-American community or the African community. So we, we have to look at there, and certainly there are a lot of pluses uh, of us. We're here as a people. Uh, we've overcome a lot. And we, we've, we've achieved a lot in this country. And I think we're going to achieve a lot more. But we have to look at how our decentralization of culture, meaning not having one state, not having one idea of, of us, has aided other people. And made us weak, not only made us weaker, made our position weaker, allowed other people to take advantage of our resources, literally, because of our inability to come together. And so the question for me is, it's about black civilization. What about it? You know, why is it important? Where did it come from? And and let's look at it. The great author, Chancellor Williams, wrote in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, that the West African population of blacks who occupied that area were in fact refugees from East Africa, where they built their own singular societies and and civilization, with one unknown central language that, uh, you know, no one's been able to find to this day. But clearly there was a central language that they all utilized utilized in that area of East East Africa. So we're talking Ethiopia, we're talking about Sudan, and and the the uh, those empires of East Africa. 
what ended up happening is natural disaster and the migration of Arab populations from Asia Minor, the Africans of East Africa began migrating across the continent to the western portion of that continent. As this happened, they began splitting up and going into different parts of West Africa, becoming their own tribes with their own tribal languages and cultures. With one African country having up to 100 tribes, that's essentially having 100 countries in one one country. So (laughs) having no central state, European incursion was unchecked. And instead of uniting to deal with the common threat posed to the region, Actually, on the contrary, the slave trade caused infanticidal wars to ensue. So basically, black African tribes began literally making war on one another to get money, to get slaves, to sell to uh, European traders, tradesmen that were coming up and down the, the West African coast. You have to realize now, to, to get slaves, they have to go into Africa. They, there weren't just black people on the coast saying, hey, come take me. They had to go into Africa to do that. Now, who did this? They didn't know the land. They had guides that helped them. The tribes helped them by warring on their neighbors. All of this because the fragmentation in the black race has created that reality. And the reality in the black race that was was illustrated back then during the slave trade and still exists today is that the black man has not needed he has not needed to maintain his own civilizations or societies in five thousand years. Maybe you know, maybe I'm I'm being hard, maybe it's a couple thousand years, whatever. The black man has not had to control and maintain, build, protect, grow his own civilization that he controls for thousands of years. And this has had a consequence that I definitely believe and we can see to this day. Um, The symptomatic of these realities of non-nation building in the black male is he does not value knowledge. Reading books was considered acting white. He does not value information. He does not read books. We have a lot of situations Unfortunately, and, and the, these brothers have really become good people. They, they're in the penal system, the criminal justice system, and they come out and they try to do good things in the black community, and they should be commended for this. And, and one thing they do, they're very truthful. And a lot of times, black men literally say, the only time I started reading books was when I went to jail. That's a serious statement. And of course, you're not going to jail at 12, you're not going to jail at 9, you're going to jail at 18, most likely, in your 20s. And to say that you've never read a book until you went to jail means for 20 years, no one's read you or you haven't read any book about your own culture, about yourself, or even about American culture, understanding where you fit or don't fit in this society. He pursues mating rituals instead of attempting to dominate the ecosystem in which he resides in. So this is where the black males or, or, or trying to get women, you know, I'm not, I can't say that I'm, I'm above that. We're trying to get women instead of trying to start businesses and, and, and trying to dominate and control our environment, where we live, the cities we live in, the communities we live in. 
This makes us vulnerable to gentrification, which is people coming in our communities and taking wealth out by creating their own businesses and setting the prices. The, the black people within the communities don't have much of a choice. And so, but that's from the value system of black people or lack thereof a value system. They value physical prowess, prowess, societal dominance, um, social dominance, um, wealth creation is not that important. You know, they, they value physical prowess instead of societal dominance, properties, and wealth creation. So black men like to knock each other out. I'll knock a dude out. I, I, I carry a 45, but reality is you can't even walk down the street in your own community safely. Literally, you cannot walk down the street, barely walk down the street in your own neighborhood safely. And of course, the threats are from other black males and the police and whoever else wants to, to be honest with you. Uh, there's a natural, naturally, naturally subservient to any regular authority. And they naturally question all black authority. So when you get black men together, they're, you know, we definitely have no problem talking back to one another. So the fact that you're in charge uh, when you're around a lot of black males, they have no problem uh, questioning your own. And, and, and let me, since I'm, I have this platform, let me be honest. I remember when I played professional football, I played for the New York Giants, and there was a coach who was a good guy. And um, I won't mention his name now, but he was a nice guy. I remember mouthing off to him in a way that I never did to another coach. You know, and I saw him as almost like, yeah, you, you some Uncle Tom or something like that. And he, he checked me quick because I realized there are, there are no other places for me to play professional football but here in the NFL. If I want to play, I'm going to have to deal with this coach. So. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this up. Honesty is the best policy. I've been guilty of some of these things as well. And part of personal growth is looking at yourself and, and working and moving forward. That's the only way we, uh, as far as black people in the black community, that's the only way we're going to move forward. And that's actually the only way the United States of America is going to move forward. But clearly, we uh, have to deal with this. And, of course, the consequences of the black man not needing to build and maintain his own civilizations and society, he's become remedial in military science, which military science is understanding your environment around you and how to control it, um, dominate it, or at least live in it safely. So all of those go into military science. And so military science is, the fact that when I say more black people should have voted for Hillary Clinton in the Hillary Clinton election in 2000, uh, after Barack Obama, I guess 2016, um, after President Obama was, uh, his term was up, his two terms were up, literally more black people should have voted in that election than voted in any Obama election. Now, on the surface, that's, I'm saying black people should have valued Hillary Clinton more than they valued Barack Obama. And that's not what I'm saying. From a military science standpoint, if we go back to 2016, 
and we understand, you know, how Donald Trump got elected, you really can't blame him. He was actually looking at the the country, what it wanted or what it needed. The Barack Obama, um, the the Obama administration really was emphasizing social justice and activism. And, and of course, Obama was viewed as the basically the messiah of the underclass, the messiah of poor people, the messiah of people left out. He was actually viewed at that uh, as that internationally. He was viewed as that globally. A lot of people were like, oh, my God, thank God, things are going to really change. And so he tried to do a lot of good things, definitely. Uh, was the most obstructed president in history, though. Literally, he was the most obstructed U.S. president in history because he was viewed as the messiah of the poor. The opposite effect of that was Donald Trump, who was the property messiah. All the people that didn't want change, all the people that saw change coming too fast, all the people that saw, and he appealed to a very, very uh, extreme element in America, in the American population. You know, half the country, in 2016, half the country was Zeke, Zeke Highland. You know, this was real. This was, he was trying to appeal to that. He knew he couldn't get uh, the left wing and the youth, but he could get a lot of the property people. And so he did that, and he was very effective. So the military science is the black people should have understood the urgency of voting in 2016. They did not. Our numbers were not as strong as they had been for Barack Obama. And you can say, well, they didn't have a leadership. Yeah, but, you know, 2016 was like no other election in history, basically. It was almost like we went back 50 to 100 years. And the urgency of everyone getting out to vote was right there. And so we did not do it for whatever reason. That is military science. The black man is remedial. At military science, uh, power creation, power acquisition, and they they are not strong at understanding how either works. Um, making him vulnerable to other ethnic groups, and also making him a marginal ally at best. The so-called black community, as I call it, because if you're a community, you have to build stuff. You have to protect stuff. You have to grow stuff. You have to acquire stuff. There has to be an organized fashion of doing this that can be repeated here, can be repeated there. As we look at Jews, what do we say about the Jews? They produce doctors and lawyers out of the same communities that only produce policemen, construction workers, factory workers, same school, same community, not wealthy communities, still doctors and lawyers. That is a system given to them by their culture. And so the black community does not really have that. The black community, the so-called black community, is quick to antagonize, alienate, disrespect one another with the emphasis on not being disrespected. Now, that's amazing. If you're around black people long, you realize, boy, you, you better not disrespect them. You better not look at them crazy. You better not say the wrong thing. And as a pro athlete, I've been in situations where I, I need to make sure I come 
and 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 butter everyone out because I'm a professional athlete. It's crazy. And so this ecosystem of hostile discontinuity manifests itself in what I call black zombie nation. So you have people alive, but they're not conscious of their environment. They're not conscious of developing themselves. They're not conscious of what we should be doing together. They're very conscious of what you're supposed to be doing for them. That's one thing that's definitely, that's a key element of black domination. A black person will tell you what you, you're supposed to do. I'm a professional athlete. You're supposed to be doing this. You're supposed to be doing that. Okay, what are you supposed to be doing? Do you know 80%, 85% of all professional athletes are broke by the time they retire? What can I really do for you? I'm trying to, I'm trying to survive myself. I had a nice car a couple of times for a couple of years. That does not mean you have wealth and power and authority. And, and certainly that's the reality dealing with um, uh, being a professional athlete. This group does not understand how to acquire wealth and will power. Um, they, black businesses fail and are not supported like other ethnic groups. Property ownership is not le uh, leveraged into wealthy, into wealth creation and power acquisition. Uh, wealth, um, wealth, wealth leaves the so-called black community with people not being able to, so their kids, the, the, the black kids that are educated end up having to leave. They cannot create a life for themselves in the black community. The black church has given the black people um, the white supremacy structure to maintain the slave order. The, well, the black church was given basically a white supremacist structure in order to keep black people from rebelling. And so, because initially the black church was actually a platform for rebellion. And so that, that was changed by the white landowners. So when you went to a black church, it was basically telling you, take orders, be a good Christian, and, and listen to people and, and basically follow orders. Don't, don't question authority. You know, almost like, you know, God is ruling you through these white people. And so the, the black, uh, the, and then there's one thing that, that's um, a good example of black domination. We tend to be behind in technology. So the black population is usually behind in technology. We come in last. So there's a black news agency that's starting a news company and starting its own news channel, which is a good thing. A black man owns it. But the, the black experts were saying, well, actually, we tend to be, we, we tend to be secondhand in the trend, meaning everything's going digital and you're buying a conventional, you know, television station. So that's another example of black domination. So the so-called black community are extremely success, uh, susceptible to gentrification because of what we talk about. Generations of people leaving, um, not establishing and maintaining their own self-sustaining economy. So, and of course, this makes them makes us vulnerable to the laws and in the redistricting. <coughs> Excuse me. 
and if you look at what's going on in the in the country right now, you have voter laws being put in place as if the Donald Trump organization just woke up and said, okay, let's change the laws so we don't have as many people voting. Because too many people voted in this election, and when a lot of people vote, that tends to benefit the Democratic Party. So they just changed the law. That's not what happened. They've been redistricting and gerrymandering laws um, throughout the state for the last 10 years plus, basically ever since Obama got into office. And so they redistrict the lines that in such a way that benefited Republicans, marginalized uh, Democratic black votes as much as possible, and and gave them the ability to have more power and authority, more influence on government than they really should. But that comes from the lack of activity, political activity in the black community in the first place. And so that comes into maintaining and building and and, and creating your own societies and civilizations, which is what has been lacking. So, and of course, the being politically naive is also another part of this. So, these are all, they all go into what I call black domination. So, the compassion, instead of playing the game of power in which you are, are able to reward your friends and punish your enemies, we, we too easily get into the emotion of issues. And, and uh, as if we can shame people into treating us right instead of being able to, look, if you don't do this for us, there's going to be a consequence. So, and, and so the, again, not a, not a, we are a naive nation. We are, we are a zombie nation. When you talk about Martin Luther King's death, um, that's one thing people forget. I don't, he was actually very unpopular with the clergy of America. This is a man that said he believes in equality for everybody and love thy neighbor. He was unpopular with the clergy, particularly the black uh, clergy. So this is, again, black zombie nation. This guy, I think their reasoning was he was going too far and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the right time. So I don't know when the right time for freedom and civil rights is, but upon his death, Martin Luther King Jr. was very, uh, very unpopular in America amongst black people. Uh, so the black zombie nation is, again, has given us a skewed value system. So we are, we value high value vehicles regardless of economic realities. I remember my father told me, <laughs> I don't. I don't think this is going on. But he he said black people in the South would drive a Cadillac and sleep in it, and literally not have a home. And so I I don't know. Um, I don't I don't believe that. Well, if you look at it, if you look at our country today, the BMW is called the black man's wheel. So that's something that's very important to a black man. Uh, the other vehicle, of course, is the Mercedes-Benz, which I always loved them as well. But I, his value system is that's important to him, having power, freedom, liberty in America. 
is not based on his activities. So I've gone into zombie nation and the lack of black civilization and the, the, the inability for the black male to control his own society, to create and control his own societies and civilizations and civilization. I guess that question now is, can I see that in current events in what's going on in the world today? So I want to look at current events to see if I can see the patterns of black zombie nation, which of course I think I can, and the lack of black civilization in black America today. I think you definitely can if we pull up what's going on in history. I have a a list, a couple of things of top news stories of 2019. And so one of the top news stories was Amarosa names uh, the person. It was a story about Amarosa. Okay. So I've talked about the lack of black civilization, meaning the so-called black community not acquiring power, not maintaining its power, and not being naive politically and being easily manipulated by outsiders. Okay? Omarosa was a story, was a person that worked for Donald Trump. It's not the end of the world that you work for Donald Trump. The interesting thing about it, she was a black woman that was on his show, and she was a black woman that, from a historically black college, she is someone that you wouldn't think would be too encouraged by his politics. Remember, his politics were basically white nationalism when he came to when he came to the public. He was aligning himself with very extreme people. You know, they they it was. It was a little scary, to be honest with you, back then. It's like, wow, this is where they're going. And so I know it was the antithesis to Obama, but my, my God, come on. She aligned herself with him, worked in his administration. This is a black woman from a historically black college, uh, a political, I think she's a political science major. So she had to understand what she was doing. She gets into the administration. Things go bad, and she leaves the administration and says she's going to write a book. I'm going to tell all you black people what's really going on uh, behind doors at the Trump administration. A lot of stuff is going on that's not right. A lot of stuff is going on that's currently racist. <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> Omarosa, we already knew that. We said that before. We knew that before you. There was even an administration. Before he was in office, we knew there was racism, and, and he ran. If he didn't run directly on racism, he aligned himself with white nationalism. So what are you talking about? So I, I consider that black zombieism, and that you have an African-American that clearly naive politically, who is a political person. She's literally, I think, I'm pretty sure she majored in political science in college and worked in the political arena. Why would you not understand this? You know, I, I would have more respect for her if she was just a Republican 
and went with that direction and, and said, you know, this is who I am. I don't necessarily agree with Donald Trump, but, you know, I believe in small government and, you know, I don't like big taxes. That's not the end of the world. It doesn't make you a sellout because you believe that. Condoleezza Rice is not a sellout to me because she doesn't believe in big government. Uh, but I, I will say this. I didn't see her, you know, eventually everyone started to condemn Donald Trump. But, you know, she didn't try to act like she never was a Republican, as Omarosa clearly has done. And so I consider that that's black zombies. And so we, we have uh, another example of black zombieism looking at uh, the top stories of 2019. In the black community, we have a police body cam showing a California rapper wasn't awake when police executed him. So I think this is a story in which a rapper was unarmed, and uh, they, they probably didn't know he was a rapper. A rapper was unarmed, and uh, the, 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 unfortunately, when law enforcement deals with us, Man, they, they have very little compassion for us, and, and they're very, you know, the least thing we do can get a violent response from law enforcement, whether you're violent or not. And in most instances, that's usually, uh, there's nothing happens to whoever does it. So literally, you can damn near get away with whatever you do, as long as that person is black, and particularly the young black male. Now, on the surface, that obviously that's an unfortunate occurrence, but here's the reality of that, of black domination, of black man not having to build and maintain his own nations and societies for thousands of years. The police are part of your system. They are part of your magistrate. Um, they are part. They work for essentially the people. Okay. When you don't own and control the means of production, the land, and you don't con politically control, do they really work for you? If you're just a bunch of poor people that don't vote, and the few rich people, you're not together with them anyway, does it really, you know, does, it, does that police officer really work for you? And the, again, the answer is, in most instances, they don't. So if they do something above, uh, you know, outside the lines of the law and outside the lines of morality, they're usually not going to have to pay any consequences for that. So that's about black civilization for me and black zombie nation. Okay. Definitely, maybe not black zombie nation because the rapper wasn't, wasn't really doing anything. He was viewed as doing something suspicious, which, of course, is easy for a black male to do simply sitting there in this country. So I think that's a black civilization problem and not being able to control the ecosystem in which you reside and the consequences of that. So uh, another uh, story that uh, I saw was about a rapper. Now, this is definitely Black Zombie Nation. And this happened, I think, in 2020, not 2019. A rapper named 
uh, Papa Smoke was gunned down. And you would think, okay, that's unfortunate, which it is. It's just tragic, which it is. A, a young, talented artist who had his whole life ahead of him was was gunned down and cut down at a, a very young age. Who knows what this kid could have done? Okay, here's the black zombie nation. So you have the black males geared towards no value in acquiring power, no value in dominating the areas around him. He puts a lot of value on physical prowess, knocking each other out. He does not, he, he only respects legitimate authority, meaning anything black, he questions. There's a tendency for all black males to really not be, to, to basically antagonize each other. There's a natural antagonism that exists between black people and particularly black males. And what we what's going on in today's world, since we've gotten into the internet, when I was a kid, you'd be walking and someone may start talking junk to you. And you may end up fighting that person, literally. So this is, you may, in the black community, you literally may, have not, may not have done anything to someone you may not have said anything to someone, but just because they don't like you, they literally may come up on you and do what is called popping junk and talk about you being a punk and saw disrespecting you. And of course, what do we talk about the black community? They they like to disrespect each other, but will not tolerate anyone disrespecting them. So what has happened in modern times in these last 2000s because of the internet, the young dudes do this on the internet. And so everyone's talking junk on the internet, talking about who's doing whose woman and all kind of things. Just come, and it can come from anywhere. And I think uh, Papa Smoke got into one of these things. And uh, what happened was they find out where you live. They find out who you hang out with. It's not hard to do on the internet. They find out who you associate with. And someone got into a beef. That's what it's called. They're called bees, but it's basically young males talking junk to each other. It, it will be over trivial things. It'll be over things that's not that important. Or they'll take something that's not a nonviolent issue, but because they bring so much emotion to it, it becomes a potentially violent situation. And so this happens a lot. And I, I definitely consider this a, a zombie nation situation. Papa Smoke was tracked down and gunned down by someone. And um, I think he was uh, at the, I don't know all the details, but he was gunned down. And nine times out of ten, these things occur uh, with talking stuff over the Internet. It's not even someone you see in person. It's not even somebody you have an issue with over a thing. It's not like somebody stole your car and you stole my car, so we now have an issue. It's not like somebody hit your mother. I heard you hit my mother, now we have an issue. It's simply talking on the internet and, okay, next time I see you, I'm going to handle that type of thing. This is what's going on. So that is, that's what is called black domination. Now, again... You have this violence, this quickness to violence. Here's my question. 
when there's violence perpetrated against blacks, where are all these street tough dudes? There's no response, usually, when there's unfair treatment and murderous violence, you know, even if it's not the police. Where are they then? So you, you, you have this tendency towards violence amongst ourselves to each other, but when we need to protect ourselves and respond to outsiders being violent with us, you really don't see that. And so that's definitely what I would call black zombie nation and in looking into the current events. And so I've had my own experiences with this. And so I need to, I want to get into that as well. You know, for me to make the inference that the lack of a central culture in the black race is a key component missing with the, its ability, which is, uh, with its ability to create a collective power base, to be proactive economically, politically, healthcare wise, even socially, healthcare wise, you got to realize. What did who who did COVID destroy? COVID ripped through black people. COVID ripped through people with pre-existing conditions. That's diabetes, obesity, all these things that I I actually fight personally. And so, since these things are are issues that have always been with us, and we have not been able to take hold of, when COVID hit, it really hit the black community hard. So. The the inability of a culture has consequences, even as far as healthcare. I believe. Uh, one thing I've noticed, I've in, I live in this area, and I see Indian people, brown people, walking everywhere. I don't know what is it. Is something? It's obviously something cultural, and it's not just a particular community. Wherever I see pockets of nice communities, there are Indian people, either the men will walk with each other, women will walk with each other, families will walk with each other, the old will walk with each other. I see everyone but the young, uh, and the young will walk with the family. So, and it's not just one community, it's all over the areas that I am, I see that that's something culturally. and uh, That's something cultural that uh, aids them and let's let, you know, how did they deal with COVID? You know, did COVID hit them hard like it hit United, you know, did it hit them hard in the United States like it did the black community? One thing is for certain, if somehow their culture encourages them to be physically fit or to do that walking, that's something that helps them. And so uh, if that's an issue that uh, is lacking, then we need to really look into that. So my experiences uh, <laughs> as a kid and being uh, part of a race that doesn't have a strong central culture, I remember the, again, the natural antagonism that exists uh, in our race. I remember the, the, the divide between blacks who didn't go to college and blacks who went to college, a little resentment. I remember the resentment, the, the blue line of demarcation between Caribbean blacks and Southern blacks. We lived in a place called the New Development. So people moved there 
uh, at the end of the 60s, early 70s, and brought these houses that they bought them maybe for 70000 and they literally sold them for like 400000 20, 30 years later. But it was called the New D, the New Development. And so we were the New Development Blacks compared to the Blacks that were already living there. You see, you, you see this pattern? I see this pattern. And a natural fragmentation in our community, in our race. Uh, my father was seen as the big shot. He was the president of the Civic Association. So I, I didn't get the sense. I got the sense of people resenting him and saying, well, I'm big shot too type of thing. Uh, we were the Huxtables of Route Avenue. My parents were both college educated. And I believe ultimately we were viewed and treated a little different from the other kids because of that. See, I, I'm, I was a child and I wasn't aware then. I know now that when adults get together, they start talking and, and, and talking junk and saying little things that filters down to the children. Then the children begin to act out what the parents are talking about. I remember hearing uh, my uncle, who was a very accomplished mechanic, he owned his own shop, but he was an uneducated black man, he looked at my father, yeah, he, he in a sarcastic way, said was said to say, go get your big shot brother. He's the one that, he's the big shot, get him to do it. Something they needed for the family. And my uncle was sarcastically uh, talking, patronizing, you know, patronizing way about my father. So I didn't know, you know, everyone, see now, everyone looked up to my father in the, family because he was the, I think he was the first and only one to go to college. He went on an athletic scholarship and there was some resentment there. And so that resentment that I was oblivious to. And so, and I, I also remember uh, having my aunt, uh, again, it's, I guess it's the college thing and, and how we were viewed as the Huxtable. And I remember we were going to Queens to see my aunt, because my mother has two sisters that lived in Queens, and in the seventies we were going to, um, we were going to go visit, and we happened to see one of her sisters at a stoplight, and she actually sped off and turned and went and and beat us to uh, her house, and I, I I was like seven years old or maybe six. And I remember she got out of the car and said, I beat that Cadillac. I beat that Cadillac. All she kept saying, laughing, I beat that Cadillac. I beat that Cadillac. Now, for me as a little kid, I, like, aunt, aunt, auntie, we don't have a Cadillac. We have a Chrysler. But she kept saying, I beat that, repeating that and laughing. And, and I realized to her, we were the people with the Cadillac. And we were in, in the 70s, the Cadillac was like having a Mercedes and which we didn't have a Cadillac, but in her mind, we were the people that had more than she had, and she wanted to beat us. That was, uh, she wanted to get one over on us. That is a natural reality in the black race that is at the root of many of our problems that exist today. That happened in the 70s. That same mentality exists in the black race. and. Um, I think we we will not be able to do anything until we deal with that. I believe Kwanzaa 
is that platform that can put us all together. Kwanzaa can give us a meeting place for different types of people. Kwanzaa can give us a meeting place for the doctor, the lawyer, the construction worker. Uh, Kwanzaa can, can tell us to love each other. Kwanzaa can help us be that blueprint and be that platform to tell us how to resolve conflict. I believe that. And so uh, I'm closing out the show today. I, I, I enjoy talking uh, to anyone who's listening, obviously, and, and venting my opinions. And uh, I hope I've made a case uh, for the need of essential culture in the black population. I hope I've made a case for the need of Kwanzaa uh, and, and how Kwanzaa can be a critical point to that. So thanks again for your time and uh, hope to talk with you soon. Guys, have a great one.